From Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is Crosswalk. Thanks for joining us today. Pastor Clay is away this weekend. With this week's Cross Culture message, here's our youth pastor, Kale Little. If you would, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'm going to read the beginning, uh, or rather the end of chapter 31, and uh, then the end of chapter 32 to bookend what we'll talk about and give us a little bit of an understanding of it. Uh, before we dive in. While you're turning to Deuteronomy 32, I'd like to tell you uh, how the Lord kind of brought this uh, to my attention. And uh, Pastor Clay called me almost a month ago and said that he, would gonna, he was going to be out this Sunday and asked if, uh, if I would speak. And I immediately was going to reply yes, and I told Katie that uh, he had asked me, and, and she said, well, have you prayed about it? I think you should probably do that. <laughs> that's a good point. And so I asked if I could pray for it. He said, sure, go ahead, take the time. And, and uh, so the following day, I just, I couldn't get the Old Testament out of my mind. And I went to seminary for my class and uh, attended the chapel there before class. And it was in the Old Testament. And it's never in the Old Testament. And I was like, hmm, okay, uh, maybe there's something there. And I hadn't had my quiet time yet. So between chapel and class, I opened up to have uh, my quiet time. And I was reading in Revelation, and it says there that these angels were singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And I was like, what's this song of Moses deal? And so I found it in Deuteronomy 32. And I'm excited to look at this together. I'll also say it's, it's a little bit of a difficult word, but it's a good one, because that is our God. Deuteronomy 31, 30 Then Moses spoke the word of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Now verses 46 and 47 of 32. But he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that you may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Father, Lord, I open your words and hear what you say. Don't let me speak anything contrary to yours. May this truth burrow to the innermost of us where you've made us in your image. And may we hear and believe. Not there we weigh it and test its validity. I pray that that part of the process is not needed today. Let your word wash over us, cleansing us of our impurity and unrighteousness, stinging in our festering wounds of rebellion and pride, and bringing life in its cleansing flow. As you say in the opening lines here, let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew. I am least worthy to be bringing this. Your words, spoken through Moses and have for us to hear. I am least worthy to stand before your people and proclaim your holy name, but your word must be proclaimed. And greatness ascribed to you, God Almighty, from everlasting to everlasting, the great I am. Speak to us this day, I pray, in the exalted and worthy name of the Lamb, Jesus. Amen. So as Moses spoke the whole, this whole word to the people of Israel, uh, or rather sang, it's the song of Moses, uh, we're going to do the same. I, I won't sing it, uh, but uh, we'll read it uh, in its entirety. Um, which is 43 verses. So let's hear what the Lord has to say. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. 
and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teachings drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun, that is Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it, and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire kindled, by my anger, and it burned to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them, I will spend my arrows on them, they shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror. For young man and woman alike, and nursing child and the man of gray hairs, I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them, and their Lord had given them up. For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom, 
and from the fields of Gomorrah, and their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. I'm convinced that we as the church have ceased to speak about the fear of the Lord, or at least we give little reference to it. Yet we see it all throughout Scripture. And I was told when I first started encountering this fear of the Lord, I was told, now that doesn't mean that we should fear God, because you know, being scared is not good. Uh, it means we should have an awe of God. And I told people the same. But the truth here and throughout the whole Bible is that God is one to be feared. Psalm 111.10 says, fear, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it goes on to say that to him belongs all praise. And Francis Chan talks about this as well, that if we try to understand or pursue God without a healthy fear of him, we're not going to find him because he is both love and a God that when people encounter him, they fall in worship and terror. It's not only just in the Old Testament, it's in the New as well. Jesus talks more than anyone else in the Bible about hell and, and fearing God who can um, bring us to him or push us from him. And he is also one of, one of the ones to say the most, fear not. And so let's look at this song and, and break it up into sections because it, it's a lot. There's a lot to, to understand from this. And so this first section, and I'm grateful because it's a song, it has many verses, so it made breaking it up into sections quite simple. <laughs> um, verses one through four speaks of God, our rock, that he is our rock. He is the rock. And it goes on later to talk about that there are other rocks that people will, will pursue for confidence, but that, that there is no refuge in those because he is our rock. 
And this word, even that alone, is enough to refresh and encourage. That he is a safe place. That, hey, though we're going to hear a difficult word about a prophetic word, he is still one to run to. And he is still one to find refuge in. Glory to God, his ways and his word. It ascribes greatness to him as we should begin everything we do. Ascribing greatness to God and not, not us. It also gives a blessing on the teaching um, that it both refresh and chastise. That we think we, we can, that there's a difference there. But sometimes chastisement is the encouragement we need. Just and upright is he in all his ways. And this is important because later on, some people may question if he is just in what he does. And we begin by describing greatness to God to acknowledge the fact that he is just in all that he does. And he always will be. Because he is faithful and without iniquity, he is our rock. A good earthly example would be Mount Everest. I mean, that, that is like the rock on earth, right? <laughs> it's the tallest, it's the largest mountain. And I want, I want to do good diligence to when I see connections that God is using. And Matt and I hadn't talked, but to worship to higher than the mountains that I face, his love remains. He is the rock. I mean, it's just, that is how God speaks. He's speaking even now, higher than all the mountains. And I, I was even going to use this Mount Everest reference. Like, what? It is taller than all the other mountains. <laughs> Come on. It's awesome, exciting, but Mount Everest is also dangerous. And so we can't, we can't look at the rock of refuge that we pursue and say all of these good things and not acknowledge him for his power. Verses 5 through 9 talk on the heels of how great and glorious God is of how we deal with him. We'll, we deal corruptly with him. We forget our father. Not only did he make us, but he also established us. That all, all of who we are is because of him. It goes on to say, look to the past and see what he has done. And it says that by saying, talk to those who've come before. It's like, you, you've seen this. You know that God is at work. You know that there are things in the past that cannot be comprehended, if not through God. Talk to your elders. Talk to your parents. That these people will tell you. And he's speaking to Israel. These people have seen God in ways that we haven't. Um, they, they have seen God in the pillar of cloud. They have seen God in the pillar of fire. They have seen God rescue them from Egypt. They have seen him part the Red Sea. They have seen him heal in times of disease. They've seen him provide food when they're in the middle of nothing. Literally falls from the sky. These people have seen God at work. And yet still, their fear of people... And their fear of man had them wandering in the wilderness because they did not trust the Lord their God, even though they knew what he was capable of. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. Yet he cares for his children because it says his portion is his people. We have to remember this as well as we continue. Verse 10 through 14 uh, is talking about how God cares for his people. And it's a beautiful imagery. It talks about him as the eagle and how... Uh, he builds this nest and he, he uh, encompasses them and covers them. It also says that he catches them. 
which gives me the mental image of, you know, an eagle kind of like kicking its children out of the nest, and as they fall, then they learn to fly. And it's like, even if you don't, (laughs) he catches them. And that imagery is made better because God gave the eagles the ability to fly. It's not just that he is our parent and knows what's best for us and sends us out into the world and says, remember my teaching, but he's enabled us and given us the ability to fly. But we must remember who our father is. Verses 15 through 18 again, on the heels of talking about all that God has blessed them with, says that even because of such blessing, you find confidence in yourself. And that confidence in yourself pushes you to forsake God who made him and to scoff at the rock of his salvation. There are two kinds of uh, the use for the word but in the Bible. And we see but God, or but this person, God. And those are always beautiful, good reminders and good things. But they're contrasted with but anything else, and there's never anything good after that. But Israel, you have spurned God, and he will spurn you. There's no way around that. These people stirred God to jealousy. We stir God to jealousy when we find or ascribe worship, praise, honor, our focus to anything but God. That is saying, this is God. And God's saying, these are no gods. I alone am he. Why have you done this? They provoke him to anger. And this is the most righteous, most perfect way of good anger. Their transgression was in their worship, in their sacrifice, in their pursuit of the next new thing. This new God, this, this new thing that might provide a little bit more. This new thing that they could find security in. I have to be honest, y'all, as I was even preparing this message and looking and reading all of this, I was so terrified to be in the presence of this God that I also tried to find in my free time, tried to spend it in ways that would keep me happy or feeling safe. Or that would almost turn his, be a a place that was outside of his gaze. Because as I read and read this and read this again, I have nothing to hide before this God who knows me. And I spent the time, instead of studying for my midterms, which are coming up and that are also in the word, because I knew that 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 was going to be him as well, cleaning the house or playing video games. And that is why I, I pray so desperately that God speak. Because it is not me that has anything good to share. And God is jealous when we find our safety or try to find it in anything other than him. This section of God's jealousy ends with a near reference to Revelation. That, there, that this anger kindled such fire that burns the very mountains. He's talking about his judgment that will come. And it will, it will not just be a judgment on, on people, but the very earth. The disasters, the movements, the things that happen, God is just in all that he does. And he will get glory even in this. In verse, uh, verses 23 through 27, this next section, that God's judgment on his rebellious people is also to say that he will get glory he will get glory, whether we 
ascribe it to him or if he must take it from us while we're on our knees. It talks about how he punishes his people. It talks about the arrows, the hunger, the plague, the pestilence, animals and accidents, the sword, strife in the family, in the, in the home even. There's no escape from the sins, the things that we have brought upon ourselves, that there is evil in the world. He, would, he even goes on to say, I, will, I would have said I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. That this, this sin, this, this rebellion against me is so wrong that I would have wiped them from my memory, uh, from history completely. But I don't do that. Had I feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumph and it was not the Lord who did all this. He's saying, if, if, if I removed the people who are rebellious, anyone who is left at that point, who, who God's wrath hasn't been on them at that very moment, would maybe say, look, look how great we are in, in vanquishing this, this nation of Israel. And God's like, no, you will not get that glory. That is mine. The, the Hebrew word there, uh, it was very interesting because I've never seen God saying I would have feared something. And so uh, I, I looked into that, and um, it's uh, the word agar, which comes from the root gaur, which actually means abide. And so I was like, why did it render fear here? And it's uh, a singular usage. It's only used once, and it's right here. And it's the imperfect accusative, meaning I'm speaking to this imperfect people. That there, there's perfect tenses, and there's imperfect tenses, and your perfect tenses are, are complete and they're whole. And when it says it's imperfect accusative, he's saying, I, I've... Uh, I'm speaking to this imperfect people. God cannot stomach someone stealing his glory. And so that's why that word is used there. Verse 28 through 33 says, There is but one rock. We've talked a little bit about this, but it keeps coming up. And because it keeps coming up, must be important. This rock is God at work. It is God who has power and God who sustains in Exodus 17, we see a, a story of uh, Moses and the people of Israel as they encounter the Amalekites. And this people that God has sent, he's even using Israel as his judgment upon this people. And as, as they're fighting, Moses and Aaron and Hur are on the top of the mountain looking out over the battle. And Joshua is amongst the people of Israel and, and fighting for, for the Lord there. And as long as Moses' hands are raised ascribing glory to God, Israel is winning. But whenever his hands get tired and he begins to droop, then the Amalekites begin to win. And so Aaron and Hur are, are holding his arms up, saying, you can't do this alone, but all praise and glory to God, because otherwise we will lose. He is our rock. In Daniel chapter 9, we get a dream of the Persian king. And he has this dream about this statue that uh, well, has a golden head and this silver chest and uh, a bronze midriff and legs of iron and uh, feet of iron and clay. And he says, who in the world can uh, make sense of this? And none of his wise men, none of these people were able to make sense of it. And Daniel comes and says, before, before you get all angry that they can't make sense of this and you kill everybody, uh, let me protect them and give you the answer because God's going to answer your dream. Because at the end of this dream, a rock comes from a mountain 
and crushes the statue. And the history part of me loves this story because Babylon at this time, this king was the Babylonian king and it was their golden age. And they ruled the known world at that time. And Daniel begins to tell the king this. And he says, after you will come another king who will also rule. And he will be rich in silver. And after him will come another and another and another. And he speaks of these tears of this statue. And if we look in history, we can see that. That we see the king of Babylon. We see in the king of Persia who took over Babylon. They ruled the known world. Then we see Alexander the Great and the Greek and the Grecians who also ruled the known world by the sword, the bronze sword. And then we see, again, Rome and how they crushed all before them with these legs of iron. The history books even record them as this, like this iron step. And then what happened to Rome? They splintered into two, and they were weaker than before, iron and clay. What happened in the time of the Romans? Christ came, and he established a kingdom that will never end. There hasn't been another kingdom that has ruled the known world since. Many have tried, but none have. That is our rock. Too perfect. It's too good. He is too perfect. He is too good. Verse 34 through 38, his judgment and compassion. It is for God to judge transgression. He says, for the Lord will vindicate his people and vindicate there means judge. It is for God to judge his people. It is for God to judge the whole world and have compassion on his people. His people who have spurned him, who have pursued everything but God. It is for him to judge them, that amorphous them that we talk about, those them up out there, and the church. But also to have compassion on his servants. That this, the goodness of God and the severity of God, we cannot separate them. And if we begin to separate them, we begin to not fear God, or we begin to hate him. We must understand them both together. And he will judge his people and he has compassion on us when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining. I know I'm not alone in the interesting feeling that comes when we encounter God at the end of ourselves. When we've tried everything else and we are, we are just, we, we have no other option. We're just laying on the floor and we're like, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do. And, and it's in those moments that God says, turn to me. That, that sometimes in those moments, God teaches us the most. So why do we hate those moments? Why do we look at suffering and say it's all bad when God uses his judgment to draw his people to himself? That even his judgment is a form of compassion. What? Who does that? God does. And he does it well. I've been to that point. And I know many people who have been to that point many times. And yet still, we stand here and ascribe greatness and glory to God because He is. And because He deserves it. And that while we can't see it right now, that He will be glorified. That is compassion. And He will say in those moments, where, where are these gods? Where, where are these things that you've turned to for refuge and help? In Revelation, it talks about the, the great people of the world will, will hide in caves in an attempt to, to hide themselves from the look of God. And they will wish that the very rocks in these caves themselves would crush them because it would be better than to have the gaze of the Lord upon them. 
And God's saying, you hide in these caves, you, you hide. But these gods will not save you because they're not gods. I alone am he. And that brings us to his declaration. That with all of this in mind, see now that I, even I, am he. Verse 39, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And then he goes on to speak about how he will exact his vengeance upon the adversaries. But at this point, it's only the adversaries. But in the exacting of his vengeance, we must all tremble. Those who are those adversaries will tremble. But we should be trembling now because it will come. And there are people who will not receive his compassion because they will not look to him with love and faithfulness. And we think that we're different. But the truth of the matter is that he is speaking this to Israel, God's own people, and saying, I will bring the sword to you as well. Be watchful. We must have faithfulness. We must glorify God. And his declaration is just. Because even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I've said that many times because that's the crux of this passage. And lastly, in verse 43, to rejoice. Rejoice. And again, on the heels of such despair and such trembling, we can think, why is this immediately followed with rejoicing? But before what once was God, immediately followed by our transgressions, is now God's judgment followed by rejoicing. And bow down to him, all gods, because he will get all the glory. And he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. And there's a beauty in that last little line. Because he doesn't say, because vengeance on both my children and my adversaries. He also doesn't say that my children will be without hurt. Because he says he avenges the blood of his children. So I, I cannot stand before you and say, come to Jesus, believe in God, and your life will be better. We can't say that. But we can say, put your faith in him, and you will know him who is better. And is that not best? Rejoice because his will and his work is accomplished. And the pains of his children, the pains that we experience, are not pointless. They are not pointless. The suffering we see in the world is not pointless. All will be set right. And there's, there, that's a reason in itself to rejoice. And he ends this song by saying, He repays those who hate him, and he cleanses his people's land. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says that, uh, If my people, who are called by name, my name, would humble themselves, would turn to me, and seek my face, then I will hear them, and I will heal, heal, heal their land. And that is what we must do. We must humble ourselves and give glory to him. We must seek his face. And he promises that he will hear us and that he will cleanse our land. The song of Moses was sung among the people for a time. And he challenges them, don't forget this, because this will happen. Don't forget it, because you will need this to understand what is going on. And the people sang it for a time, 
and like us, we forget. But one, it stands here as, to give an account of who God is and what will happen. That, that we can't say, oh, we didn't know, because it's here, and it has been said. But secondly, this is not the only time the Song of Moses appears. The Song of Moses also appears in the presence of God at the end. In Revelation, verse 15, 3 through 4. It says, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And it pairs the song of Moses with the song of the Lamb, because Jesus is the revelation of God. That we can under, we understand who God is because of who He is and who He showed us He is on earth. He said, if you can't get this while I'm in heaven, I will come down and I will humble myself to the point that, that while you've been spitting on me and you've been spurning me to, to my face, but you think I'm not here, I will come and you'll do that to my face. And I will still bear with that and I will still die for you. And verse 4 it does say, who will not fear, O Lord? That we can better understand the love of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus because of this song of Moses. And so it will be sung at the end as well. What a beautiful connection. I also, again, want to draw attention to the connections that God makes. Because we just so happened to be in First John 3 last week, didn't we? And Pastor Clay spoke relevantly and beautifully about the fact that we are called children of God. And we've talked in Deuteronomy 32 about how God views us as his children and that he is our father. And in the light of what we've talked about, being called a child of God, when we know what we've done, and when we know who he is, that's rejoicing. That is rejoicing. Oh man, like I'm just so pleased to be called the child of God and humbled and unworthy. As we said near the beginning, I will say near the end, that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that I was and am still terrified in the presence of God like this. And I've been telling, I, I learned recently, I've been telling my, my students recently too, that, hey, uh, like fear and when you feel fear or anxiousness, that's the same chemical like interaction in your body as being excited. Like your palms sweat, you get really nervous, right? It's the same thing, but our, our mind is like, oh yeah, you're, you're just, you're, you're terrified, you're scared, you're fearful. But if we can tell ourselves, actually, you're excited, then we can convince ourselves that we're excited. And that didn't work for this. It has worked for everything else, but it does not work in the face of God. I was trying. I was like, I'm excited, I'm excited, but this is a difficult word, and I am scared to not only study this and to speak it, but to bring it to you. Because I know that God in His holiness... When we're presented with that, I knew what it did to me and that it was going to do the same to you. And so I wasn't terrified. And that's okay. It's okay. 
Second Corinthians 4, 5 says that for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And I forget that that's the verse that always comes up, whether I turn to it or not, but it, it always comes up before I speak. Like God has set a verse in my heart that says, oh, hey, remember, this isn't you that you're proclaiming. This is me. Bear testament to my word. Read it for what it is and share this with my people and I will speak. And though you are unworthy, I will still work through that. And that is what I have to believe. Church, let me tell you something. This word of the Lord that we've heard today, in the beginning was the word. That word was God and with God. That word was the light of men. That word came to bring testimony to who God was by being him himself. The word dwelt among us and we have him before us that we may understand. All this makes sense because of Jesus. And so as we close and and Matt comes to lead us in worship and we open this altar, we're going to worship God and we'll pray to him and we'll, we'll sing the song and we'll be here to pray for those who are praying or pray ourselves in the presence of God. And when the, when the song is, is ended, then we'll, we'll be dismissed. But, but I pray that, that after hearing this word and talking about who God is, that our conversations today, specifically right after this, will not be, oh, that was a good message, or that was a bad message, or that our conversation would be about God. That we, we would be ready and willing to ask, this is what God spoke to me. What did he speak to you? And that conversation is enough because he is enough and he is who we should be speaking about and encouraging each other as the church to look to him. Thanks, Cale, for this week's cross-culture message. And we thank each of you who join us each week for our cross-culture messages online. Join us next week. Pastor Clay's back with the next message in the Am I series. We invite you to join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather each week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere and celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. A community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person. Real people who truly care. Solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens. And the most energetic, safe, and fun kids program around. Find out more at crossculturelife.org. I want you to the cross. I want you to the cross. Cross Culture Church in North Raleigh. Taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.